The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guests this hour are Tom McCullough. He is chairman and CEO of Northwood Family Office, and his partner, Scott Heyman, who's president of Northwood Family Office. Uh, Tom has recently done a book called Family Wealth Management. We'll be talking about and also... Uh, the kind of things I do at Northwood Family Office. So welcome to the show for both of you. Thanks very much, Jordan. Thanks, Jordan. So let's start with a little bit of your background. First, you, Tom, kind of give me your background leading into uh, writing this book and and kind of where you got to where you are today. Absolutely. Um, I started in the uh, financial business about uh, 30 years ago and uh, with a large, what you might call, wirehouse firm. Worked there in senior management for 20-some years and... um, about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I was uh, speaking to my father, and he said, you know, we should sort out our financial affairs before I pass away versus after, which seemed like a good idea. And uh, even though I was at a senior exec at a large financial firm, it just seemed like there was nobody there that could help uh, coordinate things. So I went to our accountant, and he said... Um, yeah, I told him what our, our dilemma was, and he said, well, you can do insurance or you can do an estate freeze, so a technical uh, solution. And what he really didn't do is say, well, you know, what are you trying to do? And help us kind of get to sort of a general um, sense of where the family wanted to go. And I thought to myself, you know, there's got to be more people than just us and people with a lot more money than just us that need some kind of coordinated uh, solution that helps them meet their family objectives. So um, couldn't find that. Uh, so we, I decided to start the firm myself. I went and found my old friend and partner, Scott Heyman, and we started the firm together, and we built Northwood Family Office, which is a, a firm that serves the integrated financial needs of a small group of very wealthy families. And tell us a little bit about your background, Scott. Uh, well, the ten, last 10 years, I guess, would be similar to Tom's, but uh, prior to that, I'm a, a CPA or an accountant by background and uh, did some time in public practice. Um, and then probably 25 years ago, uh, worked in the financial planning industry for a few years before I moved into the brokerage industry. And uh, that's actually where uh, Tom and I met and um, spent a number of years there. Primarily, my my role over the last, uh, I guess, 30 years of my career has been advising um, wealthy individuals on on their uh, their financial management. Very good. Let's kind of start with a big picture here. What is the overall situation of families, uh, the amount of wealth they have? People talk about this being the biggest generation uh, passing down assets to their uh, children. Is that true? Kind of give us an overall picture, Tom, of uh, kind of where things stand with families these days. That's definitely true. The, the baby boom, of course, has touched 
virtually everything in, in, uh, as they've gone through the um, stages of their life. So the housing boom and you know, the employment boom and uh, the wealth boom and, and certainly the transition from the baby boom generation to the next will be the largest transition ever by a wide margin. And uh, a lot of the baby boomers' parents have not yet passed away, so there's still that transition to uh, to occur. So there is there will be a substantial substantial amount of money changing hands in one way, shape, or form over the next uh, number of years. So Scott, kind of give us the sense of the problem here. There's this huge amount of wealth. Are people not, for the most part, prepared to pass that wealth on and manage it in a good way? Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good <clears throat> point. I think they're prepared to pass it on. I think they're, in some cases, uh, our experience has been they're nervous passing it on because a lot of their family members may or may not be prepared to receive it. And I think uh, when I look at the you know education of uh, individuals from a financial management perspective, not much of that happens in schools. So it's often left up to parents and then, you know, others in a family. Uh, and often that doesn't occur until there's some significant event that forces it. So uh, like with many things, the older you get, the harder it is to uh, learn. So the earlier you get started, the better. It's often said that there's a lot of time and effort spent preparing the money for the heirs, but a significantly less amount of time spent preparing the heirs for the money. And we think both of them are important. Now, we had this kind of traumatic period last few years where the markets dropped so sharply. Now they've come back uh, sharply. Uh, What lessons have people learned uh, over that? You talk in the book about what you call the great American wealth implosion. What lessons have been learned over the traumatic period of the last five years? (laughs) Well, it's always a good question as to what, what lessons have been learned. I do think that people have very short memories, so the people who felt very confident in 2007 and said their risk tolerance was very high and then were, you know, uh, were in uh, dire straits and nervous in the, the March of 2009 when the markets hit their lows and now are feeling confident again. I think we as human beings, all the behavioral uh, scientists tell us that as human beings, we're very forgetful about the past. Um, and so I, it, it's, uh, it, it's, I don't know how many lessons have been learned, but certainly uh, one of the lessons that have been learned um, is that, um, you know, when a portfolio is at a certain high level, which were, for some people it, it would be the current time, um, it, it's a little bit like the, the mountain climber who said when he gets to the top of the mountain, he realized that he's only halfway there, he has to get back. And so we like to help clients think about not just the level of their portfolio, but what is that portfolio intended to do? What is it intended to fund? And that, that will have to last over their lifetime and possibly, depending on the family, over many generations. So it's not just any current level of, of um, uh, assets, but rather what those assets can do. And I do think that's le- those are lessons that people do forget and uh, especially when times are good, they are overconfident, they reach for yield, they, uh, they do all the things that, that are ultimately very dangerous for family portfolios. People talk about younger t- generations of wealthy people uh, having what they call affluenza, I guess, which is the disease of being affluent, not really having to work very hard, not having much uh, incentive to do things. Do you see that and how do rich families deal with that? 
to keep their kids motivated to be producing on their own, not just sit back on their trust funds. Uh, Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, uh, uh, yes, we do see that. It's it's actually a very big concern of parents who are going to pass on uh, wealth to the next generation. And what we try and do with the the parents is illustrate to them, uh, you know, how much wealth is reasonable to pass on. So just because they have a certain amount of uh, wealth, does it all have to go on to the children, or could it go to either multiple generations? Uh, or to charities, and trying to set some goalposts based upon their own goals and objectives and their family members as to how much is appropriate to pass on. And when you look at, you know, tax filer data, whether it be in Canada where we are in the U.S., um, it's pretty easy to determine, you know, averages and ranges of what people earn over working lives. And when you start giving uh, people more money than not, then your your chances are you're going to run into a problem, especially if it's at an early age. And uh, I think it was Warren Buffett who said you want to give them enough to do something but not enough to do nothing um, because there's mm-hmm. an immense amount of, uh, I'll say, you know, self-worth and, and self-confidence and, you know, self-actualization that comes from your own achievements as opposed to uh, not really having a focus or goals in life. There's an interesting analogy that uh, was penned by um, two of our colleagues, um, um, Drs. James Grubman and Dr. Dennis Jaffe, and they just wrote a uh, Jim Grubman just wrote a book, uh, just came out in the last couple of weeks. It's called Strangers in Paradise, and he talks about this very interesting concept of wealthy families, where it, he likens it to um, uh, immigrants, uh, geographic immigrants. So, for example, if a you know, family um, moved from Italy years ago to the U.S., they might still have an accent. They might still eat Italian food. They might have a lot of the trappings of their old culture. Well, they take that concept and apply it to um, uh, wealth. So instead of being an immigrant from one country to another, you're an immigrant from one socioeconomic bracket to another. So, for example, the the immigrant is the person who leaves the, the culture of, um, you know, middle class, say, and moves into the land of wealth. So that's an entrepreneur who's made it big in a landscaping business or a widget business, and they become very wealthy. And so they, they may still go around and turn off all the lights because that's where they came from, but they think about things very differently, and they, they're careful with money and so on and so forth. On the other hand, it, just like a, um, a geographic immigrant child they have no idea. They never lived in Italy. They never lived in poverty. They only lived in wealth. So all they know is that there's lots of money around. We go to, on great trips. We, have, we live in a great neighborhood. So that's what causes that affluenza, is that all, all the kids know is, is, is affluence. And they don't have the history that their parents have. And, of course, over the generations, that, you know, like any history, it, it, it uh, fades and, and wanes. So the question really then that we spend a lot of time working with our client families on is helping uh, families cope with those differences and understand one another such that they can have the serious conversations about uh, retaining and building wealth. So what do you specifically recommend to a family that's wealthy, that has some young kids, maybe even teenagers or they're going to college coming up, uh, that you withhold money from them and some people don't even tell them how much money they have? to give them incentive to do things on their own, or how do you help people do that transition? I, I think telling them not, not telling them how much money you have can be dangerous depending upon how you went about 
um, uh, earning your money because with the internet nowadays, a simple Google will often tell kids an awful lot about their parents, especially if transactions that occurred were public. So our view is, um, depending upon the level of maturity of the kids, is is to be open. But you know, with with um, benefits come responsibilities, and outlining what responsibilities the parents expect of the kids. Um, uh, over the course of time and, and coming up with a, a governance plan, really, for lack of a better phrase, for your family uh, and, and getting the kids involved. And one of, the, one of the best ways we've seen families do that is um, through their charitable or philanthropic uh, giving. Um, teach kids how to give money away before you teach them how to, to do anything else with it and help them realize that um, while we've, we've worked hard as a family, we've been also lucky and there are not people like us in the world. So um, we have a responsibility to, uh, to give back. And there's lots of things that come with giving. I mean, if you have your own personal family foundation, there's money management involved. There's dealing with other advisors. Um, there's budgeting to certain types of charities. There's due diligence on charities. Uh, a whole lot of the skills that you need when you're managing money outside of a charity as well. So when it's not theirs um, in their own hands yet, but you've still got some control as parents using a foundation or, or even without a foundation, just giving money away, you can go through the same processes. Just to add to Scott's comments, you know, there's here's some, some guidelines. That actually, in the, uh, the book that we just wrote, there's um, it's on page 371. There's some examples in there about specific things you can do to help develop responsibility and self-esteem in beneficiaries. So, for example, you know, allow, allow people to develop normally. So how do you do that if you're giving your kid, you know, $20 million, uh, you know, when they're 10 years old? Of course, that is very much very difficult to do. So one of the ways you do that is find ways, if you're going to give some money, find ways to do it in, in such a way that you're not giving them large sums that are going to change their life dramatically. Give them smaller sums to start the process, and they may ultimately inherit substantial money, but try and help them live as normal a life as possible. Another one is less is more. You know, um, it, it, you, you generally, if you have to err on the side uh, of um, one direction or the other, too much money can create substantial entitlement and dependence and ruin people's lives. Uh, later yeah. is better. You know, if you can defer uh, giving money so that they can at least go through some of the normal things that other people go through, having to find a job, possibly even ha- having a mortgage. Um, you know, Scott mentioned this, responsibilities as well as rights. So if you have, if you have the right to some money or get some money, what are the responsibilities that go with that? Okay. We have to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour are Scott Heyman, uh, who is the president of uh, Northwood Family Office, and Tom McCullough, who's uh, the CEO and chairman of Northwood Family Office. Tom's done a book called Family Wealth Management. Uh, we'll be back right after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, 
or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m., 10 Central, every Sunday. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answers Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guests this hour are Tom McCullough. He's the chairman and CEO of the Northwood Family Office and has written a new book called Family Wealth Management, Seven Imperatives for Successful Investing in the New World Order, and his partner, Scott Heyman, who's president of Northwood Family Office. Welcome back to the show to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Jordan. Now, you say that there's been a crisis of confidence in past approaches to investing, and one of the bigger approaches has been modern portfolio theory. Uh, so maybe kind of describe briefly what that is and how that's being challenged or how that's being changed today. Sure. Modern portfolio theory is the core theory and philosophy that has driven the investment industry in really the world over the last perhaps even 50 years and has been relatively unchallenged over the last um, over that period of time. It really argues that uh, diversification among uncorrelated asset classes, regions, securities, etc., should be sufficient to ward off a lot of the extreme volatility in a portfolio. But of course, what happened in reality in 2008 is that uh, there really all that diversification um, is fine so long as the assets are indeed uncorrelated, but they seem to all be correlated in the disaster scenario that we came into in 2008. So it just it just um, reminded everyone that you know it, it's it, it's not that simple, and modern portfolio theory has limits. It's based on people being rational, and the reality all of the behavioral finance uh, folks tell us, and I think there's some, a lot of truth to it, is that uh, we're not rational. We're human, and so we have emotion. We don't make the right decision at the right time. We overestimate our abilities. So it's been uh, so that theory that has pretty much carried the industry for so long was sorely tested in 2008. 
And so what's com- what is following modern portfolio theory? What is the new way of looking at it as to how you should allocate your assets? Yeah, there's, there's been, I think we're, we're uh, the jury's out. I think it's uh, still in process. People realize that um, that irrationality means that it, uh, modern portfolio theory needs to be questioned. But I think there's a lot of um, uncertainty as to what will replace it. it it's still not, um, not uh, settled. Uh, having said that, I think what people have realized is that it's not so much about the market, about returns, about volatility. It's really actually about the person who owns the money. It's actually about the individual or the family that, that is the investor, not so much the investment. So what we have spent a lot of time doing, and there's a lot of um, increasing amount of li- good literature and practice in this whole area of what's typically called goals-based investing. So it starts not from how much money can we make in the market and can we do better than some other index. It actually starts with who is this family? What are their needs? How can those needs be quantified? How should those needs be prioritized? And then how can investments be used to meet those needs? So it really turns the whole process on its head. Makes sense. Now, in the book, you have what you call the seven imperatives for successful investing in the new world order. So I want to go through those. And the first imperative is to establish family vision, values, and goals. So if your family, and we're not only talking to wealthy families here, but kind of middle-of-the-road families as well, what are some steps they should take to establish a vision, uh, goals, and uh, values to uh, figure out how they should be uh, investing and uh, allocating their money? Right. Well, maybe I'll talk about the vision and values, and Scott could talk about the goals. But the vision and values is really what the family believes uh, about um, their future, about what's important to them, about how they'll make decisions. And it, it's a particularly important if there is some kind of shared asset. So, for example, if there is a pool of funds that, uh, for example, parents own, but they plan to pass some of that on to future generations. Obviously, there's a shared asset that if you, don't, if you aren't clear on what is important to you, what you will not sacrifice, what you will hold on to no matter what, um, in terms of your, your beliefs as a family, um, then you're going to be very conflicted. So, for example, let's use an example. If you uh, are um, a husband and wife and you plan to pass all your money on to your kids and then they can do with it what they want, then those kids become owners of the wealth. But if you have a substantial amount of money or whatever the amount is and you want, would like it to last multiple generations, then that next generation is really a steward for future generations as well. So those are two completely different ways of thinking about it. If you're an owner and can spend it any way you want, um, or, or if you're a steward, stewarding it for future generations, you'd, you'd approach the investing very differently. So that's just an example of how values and a, and a decision on, on how you feel about the family and how money fits in has a big effect on what's ultimately asset allocation and investment decisions. And Scott, how about goals? What are some ways that people can set realistic goals? Well, I, I think one of the ways we approach this is to try and boil it down to make it a little simpler. And I think in, in the way we talk to clients, and, and this is whether you have a little or a lot of money, ultimately there's only two things you do with money, and that is you spend it uh, or you give it away. So your ability to give away money really depends on how much you're going to spend during your lifetime, no matter how much money you have. And I, I have a saying I've used for many years, and that is with a little bit of planning, you can reasonably predict the outcome. And I used to use an analogy where 
uh, if I was doing a public seminar, I would <clears throat> ask the audience, if you were going on a driving vacation and pick from point A to point B, wherever that might be, um, how many of you would just get into a car and start driving um, if you hadn't been there before? And, you know, you'd get a couple of um, sort of smart alecks in the audience raise their hand. Then you'd ask, well, how many of you would look at a map? And uh, a lot more people would have put up their hands. And then you'd uh, I'd ask a third question, you know, how many people would go to uh, AAA and get a trip ticket to uh, to tell them which roads were under construction and what highways might be closed, et cetera, and a bunch of people would put up their hand. And the success or the, the, the journey that you go on will be, um, you know, directly commensurate with the amount of planning you do in advance. The people that just get in the car and drive are likely going to get lost, take a lot longer to get there, have less holiday when they get there. And it's not unlike that when you get into financial management. So you find that now people, in many cases, do not have goals? Like they don't write things down? They're the people that are driving off without any sense of where they're going? Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people, um, the goals are inside your head and not articulated in a manner that when you put it down on a piece of paper, because a, a goal is, there's, a, there's two parts to a financial goal. One is the magnitude of the goal, and the other is the timing of the goal. And some people might say, oh, I'd like to have a cottage someday. Well, what's someday? Is that two years from now, five years from now, 15 years from now? Because obviously the journey to get to a cottage in two years is going to be a lot different than the journey in 15 years. And to sit back and and put those down on a piece of paper and plan out what you have to do to achieve those goals and what other sacrifices you have to to make uh, helps you prioritize those. So if I'm going to have a cottage... Does that mean I give less money away to charity, which was important to me, whatever those things may be? So I would say, yeah, Jordan, that most people don't write down their goals. And Jordan, here's a good check on that. Next time you're at a cocktail party, ask people, what rate of return do they think they need to meet all their objectives? And I can guarantee you that 99% won't have any idea, but they all invest. So this is part of your process as you have people write down the goals. Is this only the parents or do you get the kids involved in the process of setting up goals? I'd say it depends on the family. There's, uh, you know, it depends on the age of the kids. Uh, more, more often it's, it's the parent level. But as the children grow older and they're part of the process, we have them be part of that process. To be fair, if we say to people what are their goals, most of them would freeze. They don't really know. So we, what we do is we ask a whole series of questions designed to help them dis- uncover and discover what their goals are. Because lots of people have them, but they're sort of buried deep in their psyche and, and just they need some help getting them out and quantifying them. Your, your second imperative is what you call setting a practical framework for family investment. What do you mean by a framework? Well, a framework is a, is a tool to help you um, uh, navigate um, difficult and challenging times. So a framework is like a handrail, and it gives you a way of, of looking at the world and thinking about things. So just, just picking up on the previous conversation about goals, one of the frameworks, um, a way to think about goals, is to think about uh, your own family having a balance sheet, just like a company has a balance sheet. So a company balance sheet on the left-hand side will have assets, and, and on the right-hand side will have liabilities and shareholders' equity. Well, a family is actually quite similar. On the asset side, it's not surprising. There would be things like 
investments and houses and perhaps the value of a business and perhaps future inheritances. But on the liability side, what what's over there? Well, in some cases, there's debt and mortgages and so on. Certainly for the families that we work with, there's not much of that because they are wealthy and don't have a lot of debt. But the main liabilities that families have are future commitments, current or future commitments. So if you're going to spend, you know, X thousand dollars per year to live your lifestyle, um, that all adds up and that's got to be funded somehow. If you're going to leave money to your kids, that's got some kind of present value. If you're going to leave money to charity, same kind of thing. Those liabilities have to be funded by assets. Same with you, uh, Scott, as far as the framework. What what are some other things you would add to that? Uh, we we have a phrase called fact based decision making, and I think it's you know you, you hear the term garbage in, garbage out. Um, the two worst words I hate hearing hearing from a client are I think my portfolio or my will says X Y Z. Um, I want to know because you can make some big mistakes if you're if you're not using facts. So. In developing that framework, I think one of the key things is to make sure you're you're working with the right facts, not statements that are six months old, um, but the latest statements uh, and and material you can get. And then, as as Tom said, using the balance sheet uh, and and what I would call scenario analysis. So, uh, Tom mentioned that most people don't know exactly what their goals are, and there are lots of ways you can help people narrow in on what some of the goals may be, and that's through scenario analysis where, you you know, you you try and get to a scenario that a client can look at and say, hmm, yeah, that one feels pretty good. I like all the attributes of that uh, scenario. And then after that, if if that's sort of your go-forward implementation approach, you can't just set it on a shelf and leave it. The framework has to be adaptable to um, changes that are inevitably going to occur in everyone's lives as as they grow older and have children and grandchildren and change jobs and market implement and yeah, as the change, things change. Yes. Okay, we got to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guests this hour are Tom McCullough, who's chairman and CEO of Northwood Family Office and author of the new book called Family Wealth Management, and his partner, Scott Heyman, who's president at Northwood Family Office. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. 
Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, Tom McCullough, is chairman and CEO of Northwood Family Office, and his partner, Scott Heyman, is president of Northwood Family Office. Tom's come out with a new book called Family Wealth Management, Seven Imperatives for Successful Investing in the New World Order. Welcome back to both of you. And the third imperative you wanted to talk about is setting a long-term family wealth strategy and defining an asset allocation model. So again, how has that changed from the way it had been traditionally seen as far as doing asset allocation, Tom? Well, you know, you know the expression, ready, aim, fire. We find a lot of people um, turn that around when investing to ready, fire, aim. So people jump in quite quickly from let's get, you know, to getting some capital to getting it invested. And what they miss is this important step of developing a long-term strategy. We've talked about goals. We've talked about a framework. And now what you have to do uh, in terms of the long-term strategy part is have an integrated game plan. So that includes um, understanding and calculating family goals, including tax planning, uh, financial planning, investment planning, uh, and estate-related issues. All of those things need to be put into um, one overarching game plan that helps families make those, those kinds of decisions. And I'd say the core uh, um, feature of this long-term strategy really is cash flow. Essentially, it, you can't spend a pile of uh, uh, some kind of index value in your portfolio. What you can spend is cash flow that comes from the portfolio. So our view is that there's really only three things that you can do with uh, th- three, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, three factors that influence cash flow. One of them is income. Uh, not surprisingly, from employment or investments. One is assets that can be sold. You could sell your house or a a cottage. Uh, The third is expenses. And the fourth is time, how long you work or how long you live and have to fund yourself. And those are the factors that that the assets uh, have to, um, or or those are the factors that will fund the liabilities or goals that you have as a family. And you have to have an integrated strategy to actually make sure that happens. And most people skip that step. You talk about various mega themes uh, that you see going forward uh, for investing, and let's just briefly go over some of those themes and how people might take advantage of them. One of them is the growth of Asia. Uh, that seems to be a pretty clear theme, and how, how would you play that theme? Well, we, we don't think about playing themes. We, we, we certainly want to look at the, um, the major trends in the world capital markets and make sure that our families are able to take advantage of them. Again, it depends on what their goals are. If they have you know, long-term multi-generational goals, then they want to look at investments that have a long-term multi-generational uh, impact. So certainly, the, the, the nexus of the world is shifting from west to east. And uh, you know, the classic example is the Chinese consumer, uh, middle-class consumer. 
So uh, you'll see in our client portfolios a lot of securities, probably mostly um, uh, North American and European securities that have access and are benefiting from the growth, the substantial growth in Asia. And then you say other emerging markets too. Scott, are you with this as well? I mean, beyond uh, China and so on, are there other emerging markets and how would you uh, invest in that? I think from from our approach with our uh, with our clients, we we actually use a number of sub advisors where, uh, on a global basis, they'll go out and and I guess really are bottom up stock pickers and would find um, good companies that have exposure to various markets as opposed to draw, trying to direct uh, to invest directly in some of these emerging markets because that that can be very difficult to do. Um, where you've got people on the ground, companies that are running businesses in those com- in those countries that are contributing to the you know the bigger name, whether it's you know GE, Johnson and Johnson, Coke, whoever it may be, that are are all around the world. So you're participating from that perspective um, through the businesses that you own. So we have selectively used, uh, um, I'll say you know pooled or ETF approaches for certain countries for certain clients, uh, but for the most part, we would leave it up to uh, the individual managers to pick and choose. And then you say climate change and the environment is another theme you're looking at, Tom. How would you, uh, what is the significance of that and what are the investment ways to uh, profit from that? Um, you know, it's one of those major themes that is, uh, uh, you know, put it in the category of inevitable. And I guess the question is, are there ways, are there companies that are already good companies. I mean, we don't want to bet the farm on some some random idea. What we want to buy is good quality, well-run, uh, generally dividend-paying, good quality companies that have some exposure to, um, you know, uh, you don't want to be in the buggy whip business. You want to be in something that's moving forward and is growing. So anything that's you know going to solve problems that are related to climate change, that are related to obesity, that are related to world health, and growing education, all those things are major trends, and you might as well be in the the flow of those areas. What you don't want to do is chase something and overpay for it. So that's typically what happens if people get too enthused. So, for example, today, would you say social media stocks and that whole space is uh, over-invested? Well, we're kind of old-fashioned. We like to see earnings, and a lot of those you companies do. don't, don't wow. have earnings. So we'd rather uh, give up on what seems like today's hot idea because we're in the business of, number one, capital preservation, and number two, meeting client objectives over the long term. Okay, your fourth imperative is uh, to, to draft an annual policy, investment policy statement and refine investment tactics. So again, applying this to the average family, what kind of things should they look at in their uh, investment policy statement? Well, because we're human beings, we are subject to... Um, Emotions. So when markets are good, we feel confident. When markets are bad, we feel not confident. And of course, those are just uh, probably the wrong times to either invest or not invest. So an investment policy statement for anybody, whether wealthy or not, is a great um, uh, personal discipline. So it helps you. We, we call it drunk and sober. So you write an investment policy when you're sober. You think about, hmm, what do we want as a family? What should our investments look like to make sure that happens? So that's when you're sober. But when you're drunk with greed or fear or busyness, if, if you've got some kind of tool like an investment policy statement that reminds you that this is what you really wanted to do, not your you know crazy emotional side, it's very, very helpful. So an investment policy 
will, uh, number one, help you clarify your objectives. It will define an asset allocation policy, so what's the standard you know, mix of various assets that's appropriate for your family given your needs. And it'll establish um, both management procedures, you know, how, what will happen, how will this be managed, and what constraints does an does a investment manager have. And it'll determine communication procedures. You know, so what does an investment manager um, have to do when they need to make a change, or what do you, if you're running it yourself, what, what, uh, what are the, your, the constraints that you put on yourself so you're not just acting in a knee-jerk fashion? Um, and, and Scott, uh, in picking money managers to, to implement these uh, investment ideas, what are some tips that people should look for, either private money managers or mutual funds or other ways of uh, money management? Um, we, we think of the, the four P's when we think of uh, selecting money managers. There's a lot more that goes into it, but if I had to boil it down to that, so people, philosophy, process, and performance. Um, I think performance is the quantitative measure that you can use to help you get started. Um, you want to look for uh, either funds or managers that have had good long-term performance. Um, I generally don't care about the last year, two, three. Um, I'd like to see how they're performing through certain types of market cycles. Um, but really, I want to look behind the performance and see, you know, are the people that have delivered the long-term performance still there? Um, what is their philosophy on money management? How do they make decisions? Uh, how do stocks get in and out of the portfolio? And then what's their in Internal process to make that philosophy really come to life and, and build the portfolio. So, when we interview money managers, we've already done the quantitative work and really interested on those other uh, attributes that uh, will help us decide. It, it's it, it's not all science. There's certainly some art in it, and uh, we would suggest following a particular fund or money manager and learning as much as you can about them uh, long before you actually give them money uh, because you, you want to have some history of, of, of what they're doing and why they're doing it before you, you just hand over money. So we often see, uh, which we think is a big mistake, you know, somebody's hot and they were the best performing mutual fund manager last year, so that attracts a whole pile of money. And we actually have one money manager right now that says, if I had a great year this year, you should take some money away from me and give it to your worst performing manager from the year before because chances are uh, they are going to have a good year next year. Have you had some money managers that you put money with going through the process you just talked about and then things didn't work out despite all your cautions that it, it looked good but it didn't end up working out over the long term? We've definitely, uh, we've, you know, we've certainly had some managers that we uh, were disappointed with in a particular period of time, but we've actually been very fortunate. We've had a group of uh, four or five core managers that we've used for almost the full 10 years uh, our firm has been in existence. So we've, um, we, we've made very, very few changes. Part of it is because we look for managers that protect downside. So when things are bad, uh, we want to go down by substantially less than the market. And when things are good, we're satisfied to go up you know, with the market or even a little bit less. And it's amazing how when you add up all those, uh, those numbers, how that works out very, very positively in your favor as an investor. I guess if you have a lot of money, protecting your principal is more important than making it grow to some extent. 100% of our clients would say that. They'd, most of them are entrepreneurs. They've built and sold a business. They don't want to do it again. Indeed, very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guests this hour are Tom McCullough, our chairman and CEO of Northwood Family Office, and his partner, Scott Heyman, who's president at Northwood Family Office. They do have a website, by the way, which is northwoodfamilyoffice.com. 
Uh, and there's a website related to his new book, which is familywealthmanagementbook.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Are you looking for innovative ideas on how to achieve your financial dreams? Tune in to Empirical Investing Radio every Thursday afternoon at 2 Pacific, 5 Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Join certified financial planners Ken Smith and Ethan Broga to learn how you can obtain financial success. You'll be entertained while you discover techniques to alleviate your financial concerns. Empirical Investing Radio every Thursday at 2 Pacific, 5 Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Think of the world. 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, Tom McCullough, Chairman and CEO of Northwood Family Office, and his partner, Scott Heyman, President at Northwood Family Office, uh, based in Canada. And Tom's new book is called Family Wealth Management. Welcome back to the show. So, Tom, we wanted to talk about uh, what you call the search for recurring alpha and looking at alternative assets. These are things like private equity, uh, commodities, uh, not traditional stocks and bonds. What, what are some th- things people should look for in wanting to invest in those areas? Well, of course, the, the main reason for investing in uh, alternative assets, uh, two, I suppose. One is additional potential return. And the other is um, uh, di- additional diversification and therefore lower volatility. And uh, the, both of those goals are um, laudable goals and important. And uh, the dilemma, of course, is, uh, is finding good and appropriate um, uh, managers and investments and ensuring that you don't pay too much for them. And that's one of the problems with alternative investments is in many cases they are very expensive because obviously you're, you're buying the skill of a particular investment manager. If it works out well, then it's going to seem, the high fees are going to seem cheap. But of course, in many cases, it, it, uh, it does not work out particularly well. So for, for instance, in hedge funds, um, along with the complexity and the uh, lack of transparency, there's a lot. There's the fees are high. So, for example, um, there's most hedge fund fees are two percent plus a twenty percent of the upside. Almost all of the fees that are paid to hedge fund managers come out of that two percent. So, obviously, there's not much 
that the, the uh, investor is sharing with the investment manager. It's really just an expensive fund. So we, in our firm, we tend to use private equity, real estate, um, insurance as a as an asset class because of tax advantages uh, in the jurisdiction we're in. But we're, um, you know, you just have to be very careful of fees and volatility and lockups. Okay, your imperative number five is to monitor performance and respond to the need for change. So briefly, how should people uh, do that? Well, essentially, it's it's a, a key uh, a key component of a plan. And once you write the plan, you don't just leave it aside. You monitor it and you ensure that it is meeting your objectives. And you have to be very careful again that you don't just you know say, oh, it, it, my manager or fund uh, had a bad quarter. Of course, they're going to have a bad quarter. And quite frankly, you could argue that um, uh, you know a quarter is just random. You never know what's going to happen. Warren Buffett thinks five year periods are random. So. So certainly one or two quarters is random. But what you want to see is, is the manager that you hired or is the fund that you bought doing what it promised to do? And you have to uh, evaluate it relative to various benchmarks. Uh, It's peers, for example, possibly um, public benchmarks, but also on an after-tax and after-inflation basis. And where the... the, um, the, process, the uh, plan is off track, you have to get it back on track to ensure that your goals are, being, are, are likely to be met. Okay, then your sixth imperative is to select and manage an ecosystem, as you call it, of trusted financial advisors. Is this something that you put together for your clients, or they already bring their advisors with them and you kind of coordinate them? Uh, that's a good, good uh, question, and the answer is both. In some cases, clients bring their own accountants and lawyers and uh, you know, family uh, experts with them. In some cases, we um, connect them with appropriate people. In our particular business model, uh, we're neutral. Uh, we just want to make sure there's great advisors for clients. But the key issue, there's, I think two key issues. One is expertise and trust. And you want people who are very, very skilled at their particular area. That's why large organizations, um, you know, banks and so on, you know, often say we can do all this internally. But the dilemma there is that really is the very best tax person, the very best investment person resident in that bank, I think, Probably not. So what we do is we take an open architecture approach, which means we do, we look anywhere and everywhere for the very best advisors um, that that can help those families. On top of all that, what you really need, we believe, is you need some kind of coordinator. And think about it. You know, if you if you run a, bi- a widget business, uh, how do you run that business? You know, you have a CEO, you have uh, manufacturing and sales directors that sit around the table. They meet every two weeks to run a business. If you have the same amount of money, but it's in financial assets, how do you do that? Is there a central coordinator? Do the people sit around the table? The answer is often not. And we think financial assets deserve to be run as well as an entrepreneur would run their own business. Scott, people might not be aware of the whole concept of a family office, which is what Tom was talking about here. Briefly describe what a family office is and how that can help coordinate all this. And is it something that average people can do as well as you only have to be super wealthy to have a family office? Uh, well, a family office, I guess probably the easiest way to describe it is like a personal CFO. So if you think of a CFO in a business um, who is involved in all the financial and, and strategy aspects of the business, that's what, what we would do for our families. And uh, we would touch any part of what it is they do. And every family is different because they have uh, different composition, different needs, different goals, etc. Um, typically, uh, you need a certain amount of wealth to um, substantiate any fees that you're going to have to pay um, to employ a family office. So our, our starting level would be $5 million in assets. 
Um, saying that, if you've got less than that, you could certainly approach it on your own uh, in a similar way uh, in that you would have to be the coordinator of, of all those other experts. And the, the challenge there often is having the skill sets to be that coordinator. Um, and that, that's where um, other parts of the market have, have tried to do, you know, fill in and do certain aspects of that. The other side of it, I think, Jordan, is the, the more money you have, the more complex things become. Uh, and, and therefore, you do need a, an added expertise as, as the, the zeros behind your asset base increase. Your seventh imperative, we talked about a little bit before, is engage and educate the family. It's not only about getting the money, but getting them involved in the whole process. Is this something that is, is easy for people to do? Or, or I find a lot of times parents are pretty secretive about their money, particularly if they've got a lot of it and really don't want to share with their kids yeah, and grandkids. That's right. It's very challenging. And, you know, people often ask, you know, what is the sil- silver bullet? You know, what's the right way to do things? And unfortunately, there is no answer. It very much depends on the uh, the history and culture of the family it depends on the capability of the kids uh, depends on you know how much money there is how much it might affect their lives so there's no simple answer I think that maybe some of the common elements though is you know uh, preparation and communication uh, at, at the very least you want to not have uh, a transfer of money be a complete surprise to kids it's uh, completely bad for them to uh, get a large amount of money and not have, have been prepared for it. So, for for instance, one of the things that's key in our world is we teach help uh, teach financial literacy to the children of our clients. So we teach them basic things about whether you should pay down a mortgage or contribute to a retirement plan, whether you should buy or lease a car, right through to how do you become a, a good beneficiary of a trust, if indeed they're going to be a beneficiary of a trust. So preparation and planning uh, is really the theme of the book, quite frankly, and it certainly applies in the uh, distribution and tra- wealth transition strategy. We have about two minutes to go. We have this massive uh, tr- distribution of wealth that's going to be happening, as you say, the biggest ever in history. What is your biggest worry about how this is going to go over the coming generation as the older people die off and uh, have these billions of dollars going to the younger generation? That's for you, Tom. Well, you know, we definitely are worried about it. There are... Um when you haven't worked for the money yourself and you've just inherited, inherited it, it comes with a lot of baggage. People feel like, you know, in, in, for most people, they think, oh, isn't that a wonderful thing? But for a lot of people, they feel like they didn't deserve it. They, it, it, it causes this affluenza disease that you talk about. It, it, uh, you know, there's an expression that says uh, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. That typically means that somebody makes the money, you know, and they go out from shirt sleeves into wearing a jacket. It's an old expression. And, and after three generations, the money's lost because we talked about the immigrants and natives to wealth. These natives to wealth have known nothing other than wealth. So they don't prepare properly and they, don't, um, they aren't uh, ready to handle the massive amount of money that they're going to receive. And what is your experience, Scott, in, in the same kind of thing? And, and, and this yeah, is what you're trying to put people off from, but what is your big worry about uh, this coming? Well, I, I actually, I, I'm probably not quite as worried as maybe Tom might let on, is that I think there are two other underlying things that are occurring. Number one is um, people are living a lot longer. So the, the wealth, um, number one, most people will keep the majority of their wealth throughout their lifetime. So the longer they live, the more of their wealth they're going to consume. The other side of it is 
you know, if, if the patriarch and matriarch made the wealth and they've got three or four children and they have grandchildren, families, you know, um, multiply exponentially and there's more people to take care of. So unless there's another infusion of wealth, that wealth is going to be spread um, amongst more people than just, just you know, the, the people who made it. So um, that does not... Um, mitigate the need for planning and and educating and preparing the next generations and I think Tom hit the nail on the head in his comment a few minutes ago and that's communication um, he said you know not not preparing your kids for for getting money is is a terrible thing but I think also kids who have an expectation of getting money but then don't get money is just as bad so communicating with your family and letting them know what we talked about really right at the top of the show was you know, the rights and responsibilities that come along with wealth and um, the more communication that occurs over the course of the uh, the generations, the better prepared people are going to be. Very good. Well, thank you so much. My guests this hour have been Tom McCullough. Uh, he's chairman and CEO of Northwood Family Office. His partner, Scott Heyman, is president at Northwood Family Office. Tom's new book is called Family Wealth Management. Seven Imperatives for Successful Investing in a New World Order. Uh, his website is NorthwoodFamilyOffice.com, and there's a website for the book as well, which is FamilyWealthManagementBook.com. Thanks so much for being on The Money Answer Show, Scott and Tom. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks very much, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 